This is Bias Bender, and I'm Kayla Stokes. Welcome to the 12th episode of this podcast, where we are exploring the lives of Black women from the past and the present in order to imagine the future. This week's episode is about a girl named Priscilla and Rice. Phew, this episode marks three months of Bias Bender. If this is your first listen, or if you've been here for every single episode, thank you so much for joining me as I begin this journey of investigating, storytelling, and self-educating. I think I've gained so much already, and I'm looking forward to making this podcast even more exciting in the future. Okay, so let's jump right in and get started with this week's story. This week, I am going to tell you the story of Priscilla. Her story is both short, but also so full of details considering the context. So, a baby was born sometime in the 1740s in Western Africa. She was a girl whose coastal living brought her to the intersection of sun and ocean, and her ancestors had become experts at growing rice over hundreds of years of hard work. At around 10 years old, this still shiny new person was taken from everything she knew. A man named Caleb Godfrey bought this human in 1756 and forcibly transported her, along with 84 other captives, across the Atlantic Ocean. April 9th, 1756 would be the last day that this child would ever see her home continent. The ship, the Hare, left Sierra Leone and sailed for 10 weeks. 16 of the 84 captive children, men, and women died on the journey to an unknown land. Once they arrived, things didn't get easier. The ship brought this young girl who had just barely made it to double digits to a place called Charleston, South Carolina. Henry Lorenz was a prominent slave dealer, or human trafficker if you want to use a more appropriate term. He placed an advertisement in the local paper that he hoped would attract the attention of plantation owners. The ad read, Just imported in the hair, Captain Caleb Godfrey, directly from Sierra Leone, a cargo of likely and healthy slaves, to be sold upon easy terms on Tuesday the 29th instant June, by Austin and Lorenz. A man named Elias Ball attended this event and noticed some children, including the young girl. He believed in investing his money into purchasing children so that he could use their labor for a longer portion of their lives. On that day, he purchased four boys and two girls for 600 pounds. It was probably exciting for him that they came from the Sierra Leone region because he knew that the people from this region really knew how to grow rice. He intended to make these children work on his own rice plantation for as long as he wanted. He gave each of them an English name and brought them back to the Coming Tea Plantation, not far from Charleston. The 10-year-old girl who was born on the coast of West Africa, where the sky is as big as the ocean, was given the name Priscilla. Priscilla was never referred to by her African name again, so I don't know what it is. But I do know that she lived on that rice plantation for the rest of her life. At some point, she married a man named Jeffrey, and she had 10 children, at least four of which lived to be adults. In 1811, at the age of around 65 years old, 
Priscilla died, leaving behind 30 grandchildren and many more generations to come. And that is the small yet expansive view into Priscilla's life. The remarkable thing about this story is how many specific details I'm able to tell you. It seems as though her story is short, but in reality, most enslaved people don't have this kind of paper trail that can give you insight into what their journey looked like at all. So I'm sharing this story with you because having its beginning, middle, and end is an anomaly. And by telling her story, I hope we can imagine and uplift the stories of so many more people who had similar realities. For so many black people in this country, the reality of our ancestry in this country is deeply rooted in enslavement. And when I learned about slavery in school, I remember feeling so much shame and embarrassment. But why should I feel that way? And why should any black person carry the burden of feeling shameful about coming from survivors of the unthinkable? So I'm telling you the story of Priscilla with pride today. One day, I hope I'll be able to tell you the story of my own ancestors and how they survived so that I can be here today, but until then, I'm using Priscilla's story to continue to shift my mindset when it comes to celebrating those who paved the way for us. I can't imagine being kidnapped as a young child, taken to a new world, and forced to work for the rest of my life. And on top of that, having children and knowing that their fate would be equally intertwined in this abusive reality. But for Priscilla and so many other women by her side, this was what they had to go through. And she did it, with all the odds stacked against her. In the spirit of Priscilla, and also the planting of rice, I wanted to talk to an expert and ask her a few questions about how she has chosen to remember the countless enslaved people in our country's history. Dr. Etta Fields Black introduced herself by telling me, Okay, so I am Dr. Etta L. Fields Black. Um, I'm an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of History and librettist and executive producer for Unburied, Unmourned, Unmarked, Requiem for Rice. I'm a specialist, uh, I'm an Atlantic Africanist who specializes in the transnational history of West African rice. So peasant farmers in pre-colonial West Africa, primarily the Upper Guinea Coast, and the development of mangrove rice technology hundreds of years before the transatlantic slave trade. And its transmission um, through the transatlantic slave trade to coastal South Carolina and Georgia, where it becomes the foundation, it lays the foundation for uh, the commercial rice industry. And where a portion, significant portion, but a portion of the blacks who are enslaved uh, on what become low country rice plantations are brought against their wills from the Upper Guinea coast of West, West Africa. And then I asked Dr. Fields Black to dive into her own personal connection with her work, and she had quite the story to tell. So my dad's family is from Green Pond, South Carolina, and I, we spent time there every summer from the time I was about eight until I was about 16 when my sister went to college. And we would take my grandmother back to visit her mother and her aunts and uncles and cousins. 
so I had this knowledge of this coastal South Carolina place. I also had this, this curiosity about this language that my grandparents spoke, my paternal grandparents spoke, which my father understood, but I never heard him speak. My mother, sister, and I could not understand, and that was Gullah Geechee. And then I wrote a book about rice in West Africa, and I know that I wrote that book in large part because I wanted to learn more about the part of West Africa that the literature said the majority of Gullah Geechee people came from. And after publishing my first book, Deep Ruth, um, I would spend a fair amount of time in South Carolina lecturing and ended up, and this was always my plan, my advisor can attest to this, ended up deciding to write a book that was based in coastal South Carolina on coastal South Carolina rice plantations, which is sort of the inverse of the first book, which is framed it's a book about West African history framed with the story of the transmission to coastal South Carolina. Here I'm writing a, a book about coastal South Carolina that's framed with the story with West Africa. Okay. Mm. So anyway, I was spending quite a bit of time down there. I was lecturing. This is 2013. Um, but for a while, a little bit before that, um, lecturing as well as conducting research on plantation papers in the archives. So anyway, I was in town in 2013 for two conferences. Long story short, I had a weekend. And I decided in this weekend, for whatever reason, that I was going to start my family history. Mm enough people had told me, well, you're the historian, you do it. And I couldn't quite explain to them that that's not really what historians do. And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to do what I can. So I go to the graveyard that where my grandparents are buried. And the only graveyard that I knew that I visited since I was a little girl is we brought people up from Florida to bury them. And I photographed all of the tombstones and sort of some of them I had to etch and I took all the information down that I could. And I thought, there's only about two or three people in this whole cemetery with the last name Fields. And one of them is my grandfather. Where is the Fields family buried? So I called my cousin, who's actually not in the Fields family. He's in my grandmother's side. And he said, oh, you have to call basically the patriarch of your grandfather's family, which I did. And he gave me the name of a plantation. Blew my mind. I'm from Miami, okay? I'm a grandchild <laughs> of the Great Migration. I visited South Carolina. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? My ancestors, and he wasn't going back that far, are mm-hmm. buried on a plantation? Okay, so <laughs> I Google it. <laughs> and it's a rice plantation. So I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. I can call, I have a network of colleagues in South Carolina. We're rice people, right? Colleagues and friends, we're, we're the rice team. We, we love rice, we do rice together. That's how we hang out in rice fields. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good day of work and play for us. So I called one of my rice buddies, yeah. And he said, um, this is Richard Porsche. And Richard said, oh, yeah, I know that place. I was out there last week. I get you on. Wow. 
So all of a sudden, this is private property, and I'm going to see this cemetery. So I, long story short, I went out, and I, what I should have done is to go with the patriarch of my dad's family. He was very, he was in his, in his 80s. He was not in good health. You know, he was not in good health. He really, I didn't think, and I took this upon myself to make this judgment. I didn't think he could walk out there. He told me it was grown up. Mm. So I knew that's Gullah Geechee for overgrown. It has not been mowed. You're going to need to take some something <laughs> to whack weeds as you walk through. And you better have something for the snakes. That's what that mm. means to me. Um, <laughs> and he told me that the field's graves were not marked. Okay, again, I'm from Miami. I totally did not know what he was talking about. So where I come from, if you can't afford a headstone, there's a little metal plate that's on top, right? But mm -hmm. every, every grave has a metal plate, has some kind of identifier to let you know not only where it is, but who's in it. Mm -hmm. Well, this was not Miami, this was South Carolina. And we got out there with my colleague and this place was, it was grown up. It was probably, you know, weeds as tall as I was, mm. thick. Um, we couldn't see a thing. We couldn't see a thing. And what I could see when I could see it is that there were depressions in the ground. So just a sunken area and it's hard even to see when the grass is grown up because the grass covers it. Right. In the wintertime, I went back in January when the vegetation dies down. Then you can begin to see just depressions in the ground. So the first time I went out, okay, that was, that was an issue. The Fields family was an issue. I didn't know what I was going to do with that because I wasn't prepared for all of that. But there was a grave, and this was the same surname as my grandmother, other side of my dad's family, and it was open. Hmm. It was full of water, and what turned out to be my cousin's remains were floating at the top. Wow. Yeah, and I have to say, and it, it it took a while. The shock and the horror of it, I think, hit me immediately. But the real impact was felt over time. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult for me to go back sort of to business as usual mm. in my little life, in my very sheltered life in Pittsburgh, you know, um, picking up my kids from private school in a hybrid SUV, which are controlled with homemade snacks <laughs> that they're going to eat, waiting for them, you know? Yeah. It was hard for me to go back to my life and not feel as if I had abandoned my family members. And in many ways, my comfort and my career were, was built on the backs of my ancestors. Mm -hmm. So I had to, and it wasn't, it, it was not at all. I didn't just, whew, I have the answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I know what I'm going to do. No. I mean, it's something that just aided me. You know, it's something that would wake me up at night that I was called to do something and I wasn't doing it. I didn't even know what it is. That's how much I missed the call. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but I had to figure it out. You know, that's why I was sent to the cemetery and not somebody else. It was my responsibility now. And what I figured, what I realized is that I had a story to tell. And yes, I'd been telling it, but I'd been telling it in a way that was very safe and very predictable and what everybody else thought I should do, which is to, to tell, teach, write it for my colleagues and for my students. And clearly that's not what the people in the graveyard wanted or needed. Hmm. That I had a platform and I needed to tell it to a much broader audience. And I began to, as I'm figuring all of this out, um, I just began to listen. I just began to talk to people. I've always admired artists and just really been inspired in my scholarly work by art. And I so I have many artists in my circle of friends and I, I looked to them, I went to them, you know, to ask them if they had any ideas of what I should do and what I hadn't done and, you know, how can I, I clearly need to do something different, but I have no idea what it was. And it was from a series of those conversations that I discovered um, some of the artists in my circle, and many of these are South Carolina-based artists, many of these are Gullah Geechee artists, that, okay, Miss Miami, this is not that unusual, okay? The, I, I mean, okay, the skull is unusual, but this grown-up cemetery in the woods on a plantation mm -hmm. is really kind of par for the course. Right? right. And so maybe we should come together to find a way to memorialize the enslaved people and the freed people who were buried here. Maybe we should pool our energies and do something to honor all of our ancestors. And that's how Requiem for Rice was born. Now we got to the work that came from her experiences up until this point. So let's just go ahead and define what a Requiem is first. A requiem is a musical composition that is used in remembrance ceremonies for the dead. It's an art form that is heavily rooted in classical music. So with that in mind, let's go back to Dr. Fields Black to hear what she has to say about what requiem for rice means to her. Ooh, to me, it is an opportunity to bear witness to the humanity and the skill and the labor and the suffering and the sacrifices and the contributions of Blacks who were enslaved on low country rice plantations. Um, and it's an, it's an attempt to take a European art form and a European genre that though has been played, you know, masterfully by people of Af by Africans and people of African descent since you know pretty close to its origins doesn't often speak to our history and culture and to make that genre speak 
and to use that genre to honor our dead. Um, and some people, you know, I get the question a lot. I used to get it. Maybe people have calmed down now, but <laughs> I used to get the question of, well, why classical music? Why not hip hop? Why not jazz? Why not gospel? And it was really about the requiem. It was really about the genre and the ability to make that genre speak and to be able to put this, you know, classical music, this classical European genre um, into conversation with classical West African music and African, West African um, funerary traditions and musical mm -hmm. traditions and to make and to blend them um, and hopefully to create an opening and to inspire marginalized and oppressed people, you know, to really tell our stories through any genre we choose. Next, I asked her what she thought the power of telling this story and honoring these folks through this specific genre is. Slavery is really a very difficult and a very sensitive topic. And if you look at sort of the rhetoric of today in 2020, um, and it's really come back to the fore in the last couple of months, right? As we're leading up close to the election with things like the criticism of the 1619 project, the whole backlash against it, mm -hmm. you know, and the promotion instead of a 1776 project and a patriotic education and commission and that kind of thing. Um, and yet we know that most American students aren't taught about slavery in U.S. schools. And the Southern Poverty Law Center um, did a study in 2017 that found only 8% of U U.S. high school seniors could identify slavery as the cause of the U.S. Civil War. Wow. I mean, it's, it's really, it's bad, you know? And so on the one hand, on the one hand, I wanted to find another way to teach about slavery. So I wrote a libretto um, for the Requiem and the, the libretto is based on primary sources. And it's, it's really chilling. It's really searing to hear, you know, I combed through all of these documents that were not written by Africans and I, I squeezed out their voices and reinterpreted their voices in, in my own artistic voice. Um, and John Wineglass's music is just amazing. Mm. I mean, he puts you in the hull of a slave ship and he puts you on a rice field and you really feel through the music as if you are having these experiences. So I think there's something to be said when you're teaching this really hard subject that most people do not want to talk about. 
because when they're listening to the Requiem, they're caught up in the beauty of the art form. And they're learning in spite of themselves, right? They're learning about the history of slavery and it's not at all sanitized. I mean, I, <laughs> if people aren't weeping when portions of the libretto are read, then it's not a good night. I mean, you know, people are weeping in the audience. It's not an easy, it's not a celebratory, it's not, you know, it's really not. It's very difficult, but it's also very beautiful. And our hope was by using this art form, this requiem genre, forcing it to honor our enslaved ancestors. We hoped to begin a process of reconciliation. Hmm. We hope to reach people who would not otherwise want to learn, choose to learn about slavery. And of course, I had to ask what stories stuck with Dr. Fields Black as she navigated her research. She gave a few examples, but one of them really stuck out to me. This was one of the most sadistic voyages because the cap, there was a, an infant, probably about a nursing infant, probably about nine months old girl, I believe, who would, that baby wouldn't eat. And the captain tortures the child, kills the child, and makes the child's mother throw her own baby overboard, her own child's dead body. Wow. So it, um, yeah, it, and it, you, it, 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 I guess, connects that to the death on rice plantations, primarily of children during this time. I, of course, thought about Priscilla, who was a little less than a decade older than this baby girl. The story made me think about how Priscilla's journey across the Atlantic could have ended very differently. That baby who was sacrificed didn't get to have descendants or anything close to a grave. And that is a frustrating story to have to sit with. But it's also a reality of where we as a country come from. And on that note, I wanted to share with you what Dr. Fields Black thinks sits at the intersection of history and art. I think that the nexus of history and art is incredibly powerful. And I think that by blending history and art, we can really reach people and touch people and probably teach them more than they're going to learn actually reading my books. <laughs> because for the most part, you know, general audiences don't read scholarly works. And how, so how do you get the research to everyday people. I'm so glad I got to connect with Dr. Etta Fields Black and gain more insight into the importance of honoring the stories of our enslaved ancestors. 
I think this week I'm struck by the richness of Black history in the personal and collective sense. We are able to mourn and grieve and celebrate and understand each other through the stories of each individual. That in itself feels like a gift and a power. I'm going to leave you with a snippet of Requiem for Rice so that we can experience a bit of Dr. Fields Black's work and think about those who came before us. Thank you so much for listening. I use the following sources to research this week's episode. PBS's Priscilla, a Slave segment with Henry Louis Gates Jr. Yale Macmillan Center's Priscilla's Story. National Geographic's article, Slave Girl's Story Revealed Through Rare Records by Hilary Mayo. BBC's article, Priscilla, the Story of an African Slave by Leslie Goff. Special thanks to Dr. Etta Fields Black. And original music, as always, by Adam Westerman.